You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer, as always, is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, Robert Klemko, now an investigative reporter in the sports department of the Washington Post. He worked uh, with me at Sports Illustrated for many years. He was there for six years prior to the Post and now has an incredibly interesting job as an investigative reporter for the Washington Post in their sports department. We talk about what that job's going to entail, um, the most important skills needed to cover the NFL in 2019, his work on Antonio Brown and Kellen Winslow Jr. I think you'll enjoy that conversation with Robert Klemko. After that, it is Jimmy Traina the host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. I've heard of that one before. Jimmy also writes Train of Thoughts for SI.com. And uh, hell has frozen over because Jimmy and I are now back on a podcast. We talk about uh, AEW versus NXT versus Raw and SmackDown and all the wrestling program going on now. Fox's college football move to try to get more uh, traction in the marketplace at noon. We talk about uh, Sean McDonough a little bit how uh, Jimmy's finding his podcast, and then we end uh, with uh, what's coming up in 2020 and can ESPNers avoid politics. So I think you'll, it's always great to catch up with Jimmy, and uh, it, uh, hopefully you'll enjoy that. We used to be on podcasts together many, many times when we obviously worked together at Sports Illustrated. So Robert Klemko and Jimmy Trena coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from progressive it works just the way it sounds you tell progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law All right, as I said at the top, Robert Klemko is an investigative reporter in the sports department of the Washington Post. He starts that new job later this month. He uh, he worked at Sports Illustrated, including with me, for six years prior to the Washington Post. Also has USA Today on his resume, and I am pleased to be joined by Robert Klemko. Robert, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. Long-time listener. <laughs> yeah. Robert, I'm in Toronto. You're in Denver. It's snowing in uh, both of our respective uh, places. Where I think my first question is, where did both of us go wrong, Robert? Where did it go wrong for us? <laughs> well, the wonderful thing about Denver snow, and I shouldn't be talking about it because it's kind of a, it's kind of a secret, um, is that it just melts the next day because we're, we're so close to the sun. <laughs> Plus, you got the beautiful mountains, and uh, it's a great, uh, great, great city. Um, all right, right, here's where I want to start, Robert. We'll get we'll get into a lot of stuff, but first off, how does the um, how does the Washington Post recruit someone for sports in 2019? How did that job come about? You know, for me, um, I'm from the area, and in the last you know two years, I found myself regularly running out of my you know ten monthly articles or, or whatever the limit was a couple years ago, um, just kind of devouring all their excellent political coverage and 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 NFL coverage of the local team. And so I felt like 
you know, they'd been doing an awesome job. It, it seemed like a really great place to work from everything I'd heard from friends like, you know, Kent Babb. Um, and then this job comes up and it's sports investigative reporter, um, which is something that I was kind of leaning towards and, and, and getting into more of it at Sports Illustrated. And it just felt like a really great fit. Um, excited to kind of get back in a newsroom after being, you know, a satellite employee for SI, living in Denver and Chicago for the entire six years I was there. Robert, uh, do they, um, when it comes to the Post, which I think, by the way, is the best newspaper in the country uh, by a lot, in my opinion, do are you know? I think what I've heard in the past, sort of famously, is there are rounds and rounds of interviews. Is that what happened to you when not only would you interview in sports, but you uh, you talked to the managing editor, you talked to all sorts of different editors and part of the interview process? Yeah, it was really daunting, um, but it was really cool. I was there from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. the day I interviewed. And I think I interviewed with 11 or 12 different people. And I, I spent, you know, the morning and the night before kind of reading their bios and, and getting familiar with their work and the stuff they'd edited and won various awards for. But, you know, it was it was kind of scary. You know, you go from talking to the sports editor and the assistant sports editor to, you know, sitting down with uh, Marty Baer and, 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 and a couple managing editors. And uh, they all have they all kind of approach it from a different angle and they're all looking for, you know, somewhat different things. Um, and so you, you don't really know what to say to please anybody. You just end up kind of telling the truth. At one point, uh, when you left that building after those, uh, you know, after that five, five and a half hour stretch, did you think you had the job? I did not. Um, I had heard, wow. you know, who I was up, I was up against for that job. And I thought they were two really capable people, um, who had done more investigative stuff than I had, uh, at that point. And uh, I, I really didn't feel like confident that, that it was happening. Um, my mom and my grandma were more confident than I was. <laughs> it's always good to have people in your corner. Uh, right. So what what is, so you get the job, and as far as you understand it, because this is obviously a broad, broad charter, I would think, what, what are your responsibilities? What kind of stories um, do you hope to pursue? What is it in... What is an investigative reporter in the sports department for the Washington Post? Right. And it's a, it's a fair question because it's a relatively new addition um, at the Post. I mean, Will Hobson and Kent Babb have been doing a lot of this kind of work. Um, I think the mandate is going to be, you know, when there's an issue like an Antonio Brown and we feel like we need to get into it um, from a, and there's a legal perspective or a, a legal um, avenue to it. I'm going to jump on something like that. And then also we're going to have stories that, you know, that where we set the agenda, where it's not breaking news and, and we say, you know, we'd like to examine this topic or this person in sports um, that may require uh, an investigative uh, tact, you know, whether it's knocking on doors, getting police and, or financial or tax records or property records. Um, I, I, I'm struggling to kind of explain it because what I would normally do is just give you some ideas that I have, but... I want to keep those secret, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can understand that for sure. Um, all right. You, prior to being at the Post, you were at Sports Illustrated, and as was I. And both of us, mm -hmm. um, and you've been, cl you're closer to this, obviously, because you worked there the last um, year and a half, uh, you know, and I've been at The Athletic for the last year and a half. But both of us know full well that the place is very different even from as recently as the Meredith Corporation buying it from Time Inc. 
And then since then, the Meredith Corporation selling Sports Illustrated to the Authentic Brands Group, who then licensed yeah. out the editorial product to the Maven. From your perspective, Robert, where is Sports Illustrated right now and where do you think it will be one year from now? Yeah, um, you know, I, I think that they'll be in a place. Well, I, I think right now, I mean, you've got a lot of people worried about the direction of it. Um, you know, they, they have talked about a commitment to doing great work um, and they have a plan to, to keep really important people in place. But, you know, a lot of people were really disappointed by some of the folks we lost. You know, I can speak from an NFL standpoint. Um, losing Andy Benoit and Ben Baskin and Mark Maravich hurt. It's going to hurt any organization to lose that level of talent. Um, and I think that the broader concern in the industry is that, you know, the business side is going to have an influence enough of an influence on some of these legacy institutions that they will try to broaden the scope broaden the reach without holding up the editorial and journalism standards that that had been around for a long time i mean that's just that's that's not new you know <laughs> that's a that's a debate and a concern that we've had in the industry ever since i've been in it um and so you know if they're at a place in a year where they've got all of these freelancers hired and, and they're covering these teams and and they're able to install the editorial standards and, and high quality journalism um, that, that they intend to, that they've talked about, I'll be ecstatic. Um, I hope they get there. Robert, how much, uh, you know, I had four of the people who were uh, laid off by the Maven on a podcast a couple of week, a weeks ago, uh, from Scooby Axon to, um, to Joe Neeson, you know, Mary Agnet. These are people that, um, Tim Rohan, of course, you worked with for a long time. These are people, you know, for a long, long time. How much for you, how much did that last round of layoffs where you've really, these are my words, not yours. You've gutted, you've really gutted the staff. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's not going to be great work at SI because there will be, there's just great people there. But when you lose that kind of caliber people and those kind of caliber people in mass numbers, the place can never be the same. How much of that last round convinced you that you had to leave? I think that that was a factor for me. Um, but the move was more about where I wanted to be in my career. If I had gotten this opportunity with the Post a year ago before any of this happened, before I'd ever heard of ABG or Maven, I probably would have taken it. Um, when I covered Kellen Winslow's rape trial and, you know, sat there and listened to these homeless women and, and hitchhikers and talk about, you know, allegedly being raped by Kellen Winslow and having to face him and face his lawyer under cross-examination and really understand what that process is all about beyond just like watching Law & Order SVU. Um, it was very difficult for me to then go back to, say, the Broncos locker room and talk to guys about the pass rush. And I felt like after that story came out and it was, you know, it was influential and people got something out of it beyond just the headline and the bizarreness of that story. Um, I really felt like I needed to be doing something different. And this job I think will allow me to do that um, and explore more avenues uh, outside of sports uh, than I would have been able to at Sports Illustrated. 
but when you take away the quality of staffer that they took away in such large numbers in the fashion that they did it, which they, you know, admittedly botched that day. I mean, you know, everything about how that all went down. You had people that were, and I tweeted this, you know, you had people that were working there for 30 years, hauled into a conference room, fired alongside, you know, the, the kid that's been there doing social for six months. And, uh, and the ABG and Maven people aren't there to do it. It's a Meredith lawyer. I, you know, when, when you do that, um, obviously it's going to be a big morale hit to an organization. I want to add, we'll transition here, Robert, to, um, to talking about covering the NFL in 2019. Eventually I'm going to get to some of the investigative pieces that you've done. But I want to ask just a general question. What are the most important skills needed to cover the NFL in 2019? I'm a little bit biased on this, I I guess is the right word, because I never was a beat writer. I went to USA Today out of college, and I was um, working the night desk, uh, editing stories, cropping photos, and then new people, new management came in, promoted a bunch of interns that probably hadn't paid their dues, and I was one of them, and I got to be like a general assignment reporter with an NFL focus. And so I was doing feature stories between Washington and Baltimore and then had a a few really good stories uh, and then got hired at SI to be a national NFL reporter. So the grind of a beat reporter is something I've seen from the outside, but not necessarily something that I fully understand because I haven't done it. With that said, it it has always been the most bizarre thing covering the NFL walking into a locker room and seeing 15 reporters around one guy or, you know, two reporters from the same institution at a press conference while the locker room is open. I don't understand the value in getting a quote or getting some piece of information that 10 other people have immediately or that's being broadcast on television or on, you know, denverbroncos.com if you've got two reporters covering a team and most of these newspapers still do you got one guy who does that the least senior guy and then you've got another person who goes around the locker room and mines for stories from you know people who aren't in scrums people who aren't in press conferences the best stuff that i've gotten has been in one-on-one interviews um, I had an editor named Kevin Manahan who, you know, was a USA Today NFL editor for a stretch. And the best advice I've ever gotten in this industry, he gave it to me my first year uh, on the NFL. He said, wherever there are reporters is, is where you don't want to be. And, you know, some of my stories have been places where there are literally no reporters around. But a lot of them have been open locker rooms where there are reporters around. I'm just not getting the same stuff that they are, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things they used to drill into at uh, Sports Illustrated was you can never get a press conference quote. You always have to basically work some corner of the locker room if um, or a quote that was in a scrum. And so I, I, uh, I told I, you know, that so often that's sort of where the best stories end up. Well, and some of this, some of this is the fault of 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 the assigning editors because like a quote will come out of a scrum that the other three beat writers got and you didn't get, and they'll get chewed out for it. 
Right. And so it, it, there's almost a fear of missing that splash quote that everybody's going to have. Yeah, it I I I, I it, it goes back to it just I'm not sure I could ever be a beat writer in that in a sports locker room because I think you're always sort of living in fear of what someone else got although in a reduced um uh publication climate it's probably that competition's a little less but still it's sort of the same thing you um right you reported a lot on antonio brown robert um and there's i I was reading um some of the pieces last night and there's a subhead on one story that says uh, accusations range from a previously untold account of sexual misconduct a charity auction theft multiple domestic incidents and a long list of unpaid debts that was the story that really started the um, your story really sort of started the Antonio Brown news cycle uh, in terms of really, really speeding up. How did uh, how did that reporting come about for you? Yeah, you know, we got a tip um, from a friend. Uh, I work with Gary Grambling uh, a lot, and that's one of the, the reasons, that's probably the reason it's hardest to leave Sports Illustrated because I think he's the very best. Um, and uh, a mutual friend of, of Gary and I told us about a trainer that he knew of who hadn't yet sued Antonio Brown, but was talking about it and, and uh, said that Antonio Brown owed him money for, for services rendered. And we thought, look, there's a couple TMZ reported lawsuits out there. There's this stuff that we're starting to hear about that hasn't been reported. This is bizarre. You know, this is odd that somebody who's made just from his NFL contract alone, more than $60 million dollars, it owes somebody 700 bucks or $2,000, you know? Um, and so about three weeks before the story eventually ran, we started poking around. I started sending Instagram messages, emails, um, Facebook uh, message requests, texts um, with people who, you know, had expressed via social media or, or uh through the news, through lawsuits, uh, that Antonio Brown owed them money. Um, then he, so we're kind of moving along slowly with that. It doesn't feel like a priority. Then he calls Mayock a cracker, uh, and he gets cut eventually from the Raiders. And, uh, he signs with the Patriots. And then I was interviewing chef Steph Tedeschi, the, uh, the chef that, uh, Antonio Brown accused of making a death threat against him by leaving a frozen fish head in the freezer. Uh, when in reality, or, or in Tedeschi's um, opinion, he was making a soup with it. But anyway, Chef Steph said, I got a call from the Boston Globe and uh, didn't want to talk to them, felt like they might be homers. <laughs> and as you and I know, the Boston Globe is, you know, they're they're the best. I mean, they're among the best. They they, they, this, they make movies about the Globe, and uh, so that's when I really felt like, okay, we got we've got competition on this thing. We've got to ramp it up. We've got to try to get something done. So I flew to Pittsburgh, and I set up meetings with uh, a number of people that had um, sued, and people that were going to sue, and. Uh, interviewed several, and then I put out feelers with the same lawyers and said, look, if you've had people reach out in the past who just ultimately decided not to sue, I'd like to talk to them too. And uh, 
got on the phone with a woman who runs a charity that promotes um, reading in inner cities. And she said Antonio Brown shows up to host a charity um, softball game and then uh, overbids this other person for a painting of himself that this young woman created and then just doesn't pay the bill for it. 700 bucks. Takes it home, never pays. And connects with the young woman on, on Instagram and has her over. And then the charity foundation woman says, you should really talk to her. Uh, so I called her, uh, texted her, and she called me, and, and she was willing to speak, um, you know, without attribution, and told the story of Antonio Brown, you know, essentially firing her after making rejected sexual advances. So uh, then, you know, we came out with that story, I think it was Monday, and then Tuesday or Wednesday night, our source starts texting me saying that Antonio is group texting her with four numbers she doesn't know on the group and sending uh, screenshots of her and her children from her Instagram page to the group and telling the, these other men to investigate her. So obviously she was frightened by that um, and she said, what do, you, what, what do you think I should do? I said, I think you should get a lawyer. So she hired a lawyer and they sent the screenshots and a letter to the NFL. We wrote about it. Um, I think came story came out the next morning or the next night. Uh, and then two days later, they, they cut Antonio. Robert, what have you, uh, from doing these pieces, and we'll get to Kellen Winslow for, uh, in a moment, but are, if for young people who want to go into sports investigative reporting, what have you found uh, that's most necessary when it comes to that, when it comes to reporting on criminality or alleged criminality, when it comes to really trying to get to places that a lot of people can't get to? I, I think a lot of it is endurance and um, kind of a shotgun approach. It, it, there's, there's no real secret sauce. You just ask enough people, and uh, if, you, if you do it tactfully, I think you, you'll, you'll get what you're looking for or you, you'll get something interesting. Um, you know, for that story, I, I went to the police department and got police records for every address Antonio Brown was associated with in the Pittsburgh area. You know, we got records from his addresses uh, in, in South Florida as well. Uh, Gary got on that. Uh, knocked on doors in the neighborhood. Had a gun pulled on me uh, two doors down from Antonio by these people who were sick of media coming by. They had like a TV truck outside their house at one point. Um, I probably spoke with over the, over those three weeks or, or reached out to 150 people for the story and maybe only spoke with 25, 30. And then of the, of those people only got something great out of a dozen, you know? So I think in a lot of ways, it's a shotgun approach where you, you've got to stay organized, keep a list of people that you've reached out to and people that you intend to reach out to. And then just kind of grind all day running down that list, especially when you've got some competition on a story. Um, it's about who can work harder, faster, longer. Robert, uh, you reported on um, Kellen Winslow Jr., who um, is now a convicted rapist, Pro Bowl tight end, uh, millionaire husband, son of football royalty. That was the surface, but 
The dark places were sexual deviance, unchecked antisocial behavior, a lot of uh, dark and ugly stuff. Um, This was a pretty depraved guy that you had to report on. And so a twofold question there. Um, One, what now that the sort of the case is over, um, what are your reflections on that? And then the second part would be, do you have to get away from, I don't know, maybe reporting for a little bit after reporting on a piece like that? Because it feels like that can get into your head a little bit when you sort of see really like the worst of society, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and the first question was kind of, sorry, what was the first question? Yeah, it should, it should never double up, by the way, and ask two questions in a row. The first question was just <laughs> your, uh, your, you know, as now that you've had a little bit of runway to sort of think about the reporting on that, uh, what do you yeah. come away with in terms of the reporting on Winslow Jr.? To your first question, I think that was somewhat of a perfect storm because those were things that had been floating around on Winslow for a while. Not necessarily that he was a rapist, but that he had these antisocial personality quirks, um, the stuff about him, you know, masturbating in front of people watching porn on a team plane or, or in a shared hotel room with another teammate present, putting people in those awful, uncomfortable positions that had been out there with Kellen, not necessarily in the media, but like stuff I'd heard at combines from years past, like, yeah, I was with the Browns in the early 2000s. It was pretty rough. Kellen Winslow is kind of a psychopath. And so it was interesting to me as I kind of dove deeper on some of that stuff and we got all that background, just how insulated he had been um, because none of that had ever been reported. And it was whispered about, but it just kind of made me wonder how many different guys are there in the NFL or, or, or stories like this, and maybe not necessarily sexual deviance, but, you know, domestic violence, anything really that, that are successfully covered up by teams because the Browns really successfully covered this up and were able to trade him. We're able to trade him to Tampa, if I'm not mistaken, and got a pretty good haul for it. Despite this reputation he was earning, um, so that that was kind of my my big in, initial takeaway, in terms of like taking some time off and and reflecting on the reporting of that. I definitely took like a week to not do anything, and I I think me and my um, fiance went on a road trip uh, that week, and I just wanted to kind of clear my head because uh, it was awful being in in the rape trial and and hearing those women tell those stories and, and seeing, you know, them be cross-examined and questioned and doubted and told to speak up and, and uh, answer out loud as opposed to nodding or shaking their heads. I mean, it's just this tedious, um, painful process. It's nothing like, you know, what you see on television where it's, you know, the trial fl- flies by in five minutes and objections sustained, you know, all that, all that crap. It's, it's way more painful than that. All right, a couple more here as we finish up, Robert. What um, covered the NFL now for a long time? What teams have you found to be good with access, and what's uh, what's a characteristic of teams that have uh, that sort of 
have a good, not necessarily a good relationship with the media, but sort of a really, really professional when it comes to the media? Yeah, you know, I think most of that, in most cases, is is either a reflection of the head coach or the general manager's attitude towards media. Um, because a lot of these PR guys in the NFL come from storytelling backgrounds, uh, you know, whether they were former journalists or went to journalism school or worked for newspapers or websites early on in their careers. Like, they want the good stories to be told and the interesting stories to be told about their organization. And I think they, many of them, most of them appreciate good journalism. Um, where they get hamstrung in a lot of cases is where the head coach is, you know, has another agenda and doesn't want to work with the media, doesn't feel like there's any benefit to it. Um, I, what I've been finding more and more lately is that teams with up-and-coming coordinators and up-and-coming assistant coaches are getting tighter with the press um, and a little bit more restrictive because they know they they want to keep those guys from from getting hired and, and getting big names because they know owners read Sports Illustrated or read ESPN or whatever. Um, so I don't know that there's teams that are like really the worst with the media outside of New England, which is well documented. You know, I don't think Belichick sees really any benefit in having reporters cover the game. Um, and why would you if, if, you know, you've had the success that he's had without it? Um, the teams that are usually good with the media are teams that, where you know, you've got a new head coach. The last head coach had uh, a bad relationship with the press. And this guy's trying to establish an identity, trying to curry some favor with, you know, whoever uh, the local columnist is, you know, who still has um, some power, you know, despite kind of the, the decline of, of newspapers. Um, so I think it fluctuates. I, I don't know that there's any team that's consistently great or any team outside of New England that's consistently bad. Robert, uh, two more. One, uh, and you can tell me this as a football expert, but this happens all the time and even <laughs> in other sports. H- how on earth does Lamar Jackson drop as far as he does in an NFL draft? Like, how is that? Like, how is that? Like, I get that scouting is, uh, you know, human beings make mistakes. Scouting is an imperfect science. But really, I mean, how how on earth is that possible? You know, I think it's two things. Um, I think it's three things. Everything that we heard coming out of the combine interviews was that he struggled on the board. He struggled to, like, explain Louisville's offense in a way that satisfied NFL people. Um. And that scared a lot of people because if you don't if you don't know the kid and you haven't worked with him for four years, you don't really know how quickly he can learn an offense. You don't know uh, how quickly he processes the information you're giving him on a week to week basis. So I think that frightened some teams who would have been in the running out of it. Obviously, he's been able to overcome that early on in his career, but it was just it was something teams were worried about, so they they passed. Um, just because it's such a big commitment to draft a quarterback in the first round. Um, the second thing I think is you have a subset of coaches in the NFL who, if they had their preference, would never work with a, a, a dual threat quarterback and, and don't have offensive coaches with backgrounds in um, making the best out of a, a player who can affect the game with his legs. Um, you know, the, the Ravens do. Um, the Ravens have a head coach and offensive coaches who have a background in this sort of thing. So they were a prime candidate to draft a player like him. 
And then I think the third thing is that uh, players like him are prone to injury. I mean, you watch a Lamar Jackson game, and once or twice a week, there's a play where you say, gosh, I wish he wouldn't have gone into that contact. I wish he would have slid two or three yards earlier. And it's fine, you know, because he's 21, 22, and he's healthy right now. But as soon as he's lost for a season, you know, somewhere down the road, if he doesn't adapt his style of play, then you say, well, why did the Ravens hitch their wagon to a player like this? Why were they still running him to this degree and then putting him in, in danger like this? I mean, you remember Mike Vick, the resurgence in, in 2012. How did it end? He's diving towards the end zone and gets himself hurt. Um, so, you know, I think that the inclination is to draft players in that position who are going to not only have success on the field, but protect themselves and, and be available. So I think those are the, the three big things that went into it. I'll never forget um, when Lamar was at the NFLPA rookie premiere event, you know, where they, they sign all the trading cards and meet with the NFLPA people and, and, and the vendors and all that. And we got invited and we did like a round table with all of the first round quarterbacks. And we sat them in order of how they were drafted. And all these all these guys were having fun being goofy and, and Lamar, you could tell, was like about business and just sitting there like, you know, I'm gonna prove everybody wrong. And and he was uh, you could tell very upset um about being drafted as late as he did and having all those guys picked in front of him and intended very much to prove the entire league wrong. And so far that's what he's done. Been amazing to watch. You will be based in Denver, Robert, or are you moving to the DC area? So I am uh I'm gonna be commuting to the DC area from mid November to mid January and then we're eventually gonna make our way to DC and, and try to find some place to live. We've got the we've got the dog Bruce Wayne, so we want to try to find somewhere with a backyard if anybody's renting in, in uh, DC. Well, listen, man, congratulations. It's uh, truly, uh, I, I, the Washington Post is an amazing paper, and they can almost charge me anything, and I would pay it. It's just like you. <laughs> I, uh, I just, I appreciate the reporters there. I appreciate the thinking in terms of the stories, both in the in the uh, in the political. Uh, area, lifestyle area, certainly the sports area. It's just, it's really an amazing, amazing place. And uh, and I think you have uh, an incredible job coming up. Robert Klemko is now an investigative reporter in the sports department of the Washington Post, previously worked at Sports Illustrated and the Monday Morning Quarterback for six years. Prior to that was also at USA Today, and I expect him to do uh, excellent work now at the Post. Robert, uh, good to catch up with you, man. I will... Uh, uh, I'll be reading you uh, for sure, and uh, and best of luck as you head forward at the Washington Post. Thanks for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you for having me. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver. It's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, as I said at the top, hell has frozen over. Jimmy Trana is a guest on this podcast. He, of course, 
writes Train of Thoughts for SI.com. He's the host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast. He has been at that publication for 19 years. We have not talked on a podcast. It's definitely more than a year. And Jimmy Trena joins me on the Sports Media Podcast. Jimmy, welcome back. I, I don't know if you can, you know, play music without rights, but do you have like Reunited from Peaches and Herb or whatever it is? Love to hear that as I come on the podcast. By the way, Jimmy, for the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast, how many times have you changed the music since I've been there? The intro and outro music. It was just once. Yeah, only one time. I actually want to change it again. It just, it kills me that, you know, I hear other podcasts and I feel like they do whatever they want with audio in terms of music and highlights and stuff like that. And unfortunately, um, SI is very strict about following rules there with copyright, blah, blah, blah. Because if it was up to me, I'd have just like a different song every week as the intro. You know, Jimmy, I'm now past uh, being, you know, being upset at you having guests that I've wanted to have on my podcast. But I must admit, Renee Young, that, 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 that hurt me. I feel like Renee Young was a, you know, was a, was a Richard Deitch, uh, like pick early in the draft. And then I saw her on the Sports Illustrated Media podcast and I was like, damn. There's a couple of things here. I mean, you have this deranged philosophy that like we're not supposed to have the same guests, which I don't understand. Uh, most of these guests do every podcast anyway. But, and then the other issue is um, you can blame you could blame Fox executive Jacob Altman for Renee Young's appearance on the SI Media podcast uh, two weeks ago. Um, that was pitched to me by Jacob. So stealing a podcast guest is you. <laughs> I'm um, just kidding. No, listen, I'm, I, Renee Young. Renee Renee Young should be on every podcast. She, Renee Young is the best. Um, Renee Young is great. She's great. Higher download than usual with the Renee Young podcast, average or below? Uh, way above average for Renee Young. I also had Andrew Siciliano from the DirecTV Red Zone channel on that podcast as well. And um, so it was two guests and I got myself into this whole Red Zone kerfluffle by revealing that I don't love the Red Zone channel. So I think that brought in some uh, a decent amount of listeners as well. Right. Controversy creates cash. Good job, Eric Bishop. But yeah, I, feel, I right. feel like it's so weird when you get upset about guests because you, I feel like you've had everyone on. Like, who haven't you had on that you want to have on? Well, I only got more upset a little bit at the beginning because I thought, you know, we did have sort of our own group of people that we were going to use. And, uh, but again, I think as I've sort of thought about it more, I think my being, uh, being mad about that was was displaced on my part. That was kind of silly. I, I mean, it, it again, as I told you this when we talked about it when you took over the Sports Illustrated Media one, I would really never try to be mad at you. I did, I was sort of, yeah, and I blew that anyway. I was disappointed that I couldn't, I could not get my, the, uh, the sub list from Sports Illustrated because I feel like, and I think you'd agree on this, like me and certainly Bet Marston too, like we built that up. It wasn't necessarily Sports Illustrated who built it up. It was the work of two people sweating and, and booking and, and working endless hours sort of on getting a subscriber list together. Yeah, listen, the podcast game is a really bizarre game. And I wouldn't have expected SI to give you those subs necessarily um, because it, was the Sports Illustrated media podcast. It wasn't the Richard Deitch podcast. So it's a weird, um, it's a podcast, a weird like that. No, I hear you. Thanks, corporate guy. I, 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 I'm, You're I welcome. Understand. But wait, 
you said something. But that's the other thing, though, about the you know the guest. I think one of the things people who we know this because we cover sports media, but this is something that maybe fans, for lack of a better word, or listeners, I should say, there's really not a huge pool of people to tap into when you want to talk about sports media. I mean, there are there are people who. I mean, I think that's a yes and no. There are a lot of there are more people than you think who are interested in this and will talk about it. But there are not many people who sort of who do it on a daily basis or who get right who who, who have a career doing it. So that's sort of the right. the the difference. But I think, and you know, certainly like from every blog from the Deadspins of the world uh, to the awful announcings, et cetera, proved that there was a very big market for this or a bigger market for this than people traditional legacy media's thought. And I think that's been proven. And again, you know, it's one of the things about Twitter, Jimmy. You know, this is like literally um, on Sundays, broadcasters will trend as much as professional athletes. I mean, people care about this stuff. Every single sports fan has an opinion on broadcasters. Some are insane, some are good, but the, every sports fan has an opinion on the broadcaster they're listening to. All right, Jimmy, let's get to some topics here because I know. Sure. I mean, I'm ex- I'm excited to have a Jimmy train on my podcast. So let, let, let me try to get tap into his expertise. What do you think of the AEW versus NXT versus Raw versus SmackDown? Uh, let's face it, they're not all going against each other. But never before have I think more people been focused on wrestling content and what the viewership is of that content and how some of these new places, including Fox are handling this content. How have you seen the first couple of months of this so far? I tell you, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy to me that I feel like, I feel like wrestling's, I feel like wrestling in terms of quality and content is in a real slump yet in terms of business, it's booming bigger than ever with all these shows. Um, I, I, I don't know. I think the wrestling fan is so loyal and so they want as much content as possible. The diehard wrestling fan. So I think they're able to um, keep up with all these shows, but I think for the fringe fan, man, it's a lot. I, I know for myself, like I hated when they, when WWE years, 20 years ago, added SmackDown. I was like, this is too much, you know, once a week for, Two hours on Monday night was plenty for me, and you know, pay per view, you know, every couple of months or whatever it was. Uh, for the diehard fan, I don't know. I don't know how they consume it all, but we do live in this time where you don't, have, you know, there's so much, uh, so many options on how to watch. I know for me, uh, I'll watch the raw clips Tuesday morning on YouTube instead of watching the whole show on Monday because, you know, the, sh- the quality of the show has not been great lately. Um, it's very bizarre to me that they keep adding and adding and adding and the content and the quality is just, I mean, AEW is doing a lot of great things. I'm not taking away from them. I'm talking more really about WWE. Um, so it's a weird time, I think, but if you're a wrestling fan, my God, you, you gotta be thrilled. Well, one of the things, I mean, again, all these numbers are going to, from the, you know, from like, for instance, like Fox's Fox's debut with SmackDown. They're never going to get that number again. I mean, you know, Right. right. You have like The Rock and just like so much promotion. I mean, you're going to get close to four million people and AEW's numbers have dropped a little bit. But I have to admit, Jimmy, I find myself really impressed by what AEW is doing. 
Um, just in I terms know. of storyline, in terms, of, I mean, they know how to write finishes. Uh, that company, and it feels like they are allowing their people to really kind of freelance and ad lib. And I think that product is, I think that product's great. That's not to knock WWE. And I think NXT is an excellent product too, but uh, man, I'm right. really impressed with AEW. I, can they, can they, can they keep this up over the next five years? I have no idea, but to, to me, they've gotten off to a phenomenal start. I mean, just to even come close to 800, 900, a million viewers on Turner, me for a new company is really impressive. I, you know, maybe this is me not being as on top of it as I should be, but I was completely stunned that they won the ratings war week one and have won it every week since, every Wednesday since. AEW has easily topped NXT, and and, and not not because of quality, just but but just because of the the WWE. You know this better than anyone. The PR machine of the WWE, the brand name of the WWE. You know, you don't have to be a wrestling fan at all, and you know WWE. I mean, it is a global company. It is a PR behemoth. I was stunned that AEW won that first week. And when you say, you know, five years from now, the fact that they, to me, the fact that they've won the ratings every week, I, I, I think that company has to be absolutely ecstatic with what, what they've been doing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think they've, they've done a great job so far, and they just have very interesting people there from Moxley to... Uh, Kenny Omega to obviously Cody Rhodes, Chris Jericho, once again, just sort of proving he's really one of the great performers of all time. Just his ability to reinvent character blows me away. One thing I have to say, I'm, I'm a little surprised I want you to take on this. I thought by now, too, there would have been a lot more disgruntled WWE guys who would have jumped ship by now. I don't know if the WWE is just locking everyone with contracts, if there's no non-competes or whatever it is. Um, you have a lot of talent there. You know, I mean, obviously, John Moxley slash Dean Ambrose. I, I, I thought that was going to start a way bigger uh, exodus and, and sort of a jump ship movement, but it hasn't really happened yet. They may be under contract, though. I mean, like, it may be, yeah. you know, I would think, I, I don't know the contractual situations, but I would think people like Becky Lynch and uh, Roman Reigns and Rollins and Braun Strowman. Yeah, I would think those guys are a lot. I mean, you know, I would. I, I don't know this, but I would think that the, the people, at least who are pretty much um, front and center in WWE, I would think have some long-term deals at this point. Right, right. I'm talking more about like a, a Dolph Ziggler or a, you know, guys yeah. like that. Yeah. I think there, there are some, I, I think those who either are underutilized in WWE or who really could who are really, I feel like, good on the mic or who sort of can freelance. Maybe it's not the mm-hmm. greatest term, but that was the term I'd use. So like Ziggler, Sami Zayn. Like I feel like right. people... Uh, I'm trying to sort of think who... like who. Uh, I actually think Samoa Joe would be really good for AEW. I should think he's a really right. kind of interesting character. I, I, I think more will happen. But also, if you're AEW, you do got to think to yourself, all right, like somebody who's so known in the other company you know you can't use the same uh character so you know moxley was able to sort of pull this off like it'd be interesting to see how many of those people could sort of pull off moving to another company but yet never being referred to the old character right that's a good point that's true 
Uh, all right, let's move on, Jimbo. College football. Yep. Mike Mulvihill, uh, who has become essentially, you know, not only the director of strategy at Fox, but the director of public relations as well, based on his Twitter feed. He um, was one of the people behind the, not one of the people, I think he is the, he is literally the person behind Fox moving its biggest game of the week to noon every week. And that has turned out to be, Jimmy, a great strategy for Fox. They've gotten a ton of momentum with some of those noon games. It's helped, obviously, that Ohio State's been great and the Big Ten's pretty good this year. They have a new college football show that has done better than I expected, just to be very blunt. Big noon kickoff is, um, viewership-wise, I think Fox has to be happy. They haven't beaten college game day, but their numbers have been really, really good. And I think in the coaching segments, Urban Meyer's been terrific. And I'm someone who wrote that I won't trust anything Urban Meyer has to say in terms of college football issues, but I but I, I have to be honest, his, his schematic stuff has been awesome, and that show is working. How have you seen... Um, sort of what Fox is doing this year in college football. Well, one of the things I, I, I find fascinating is that somehow every Monday or, or Tuesday I go onto Twitter and Fox claims they had the most watched college football game of the day. ESPN claims they had the most watched college football game of the day. And CBS claims they had the most watched college football game of the day, which I'm not sure how they all claim that. But And it's usually – here's the funny thing. I feel like in – you know this – better than anyone. Fox and ESPN, I feel like they love to push their uh, ratings when they're, when they're good. And I feel like CBS is the one who sort of low keys it. They're the one who pretty much have the best game. They have the best game every Saturday. So um, it's kind of interesting. Listen, Fox made a smart move by adding a pregame show. I think one of the, when you compare it to game day, it's a foolish comparison because game day has been on for so many years, but there's also another comparison here. Yes. We live in this time where, uh, viewership is so fractured and the way people watch things is, uh, multifaceted, but you're still comparing network to cable. There's still a decent amount of people out there who don't have cable. So it made sense to put a college pregame show on network television. I think you have a lot of people who don't have cable tune into that that pregame show and then the game afterwards um in terms of you know i know their ratings have been good for noon and i you know i wouldn't downplay it like okay but outside of uh i think maybe one or two weeks it's it's not like you know everyone is you know fox has dominated the saturday i mean the better games are still always going to be 3.30 CBS and 8 o'clock ABC most weeks. This week was a disaster for ABC. Um, I mean, Fox this week had a Maryland-Ohio State game that you couldn't watch one second of. Now, they'll get a big number because it's Ohio State. I think it's it's been a it's a positive story for Fox. It doesn't mean that right. they're dominating college football. You're exactly correct. I mean, this right. week, you know, the Alabama-LSU game drew 16 million plus. It, it blew away everything biggest game of right. the season by leaps and bounds. So I think, but I think if you're Fox and like four years ago, three years ago, you were in Nowhereville. It's a positive story for you because at least you're on the map again. That's how I'd look at it. Well, right. Moving their, moving their better game from three thirty or four o'clock to noon was definitely a smart move. Although I guess my only point is even though they're saying they're putting their best game at noon, it's still not always a game. Right. It, it, it's a great game sometimes, but not, I mean, it's the big 10 every week, you know, outside of Ohio state, Michigan, it's not going to really, 
Now, next year, it does sound like they're still going forward with airing. They're going to air some Pac-12 games, 9 o'clock local at, you know, at noon. That will be interesting. Yeah, that's t- I mean that's awful. I think for the students and that's a, the, I, I get the Pac-12. I guess wants some uh, publicity or you know a better window, but that, that's I mean that's kind of disgraceful to do to your to do I think to do to your students, athletes first and foremost, and then secondly to ask people to come out seven thirty or whatever to tailgate. It's just I mean come on. You know, I mean, don't, don't, what do you have to do? I mean, you have to bend over everything to get on Fox at noon. Listen, I, I agree, but I, I think the narrative of like, you know, doing that to this, to, to the fans is college kids. What they'll do is they'll just stay up all night and then go to the game. All right. That's fine. You agree though. That's it's unfair to the football players. You agree with that at least? Yeah. Yeah. I agree. All right. Thank you. Thank God. But again, is Uh, it really, I mean, is it any more unfair though than like, you know, if a Pac-12 team's got to, you know, go to like Carlin, I think played Old Miss at twelve o'clock. Uh, you know, they're, well, they're everything's done, Jimmy. Every everything is done so. for television, which is infuriating sometimes. Oh, of course, but yeah. I get it. Yeah. That's where that's how these. You know, there's a reason why athletic directors are driving Ferraris and coaches are driving Maseratis. I mean, they they play the game for ESPN huh? and Fox and CBS, and that's how this is done. Which, again, as I've always said. In, in my revolutionary tone, if college kids decided not to come out for the national championship football game and said, you know, we, we're not coming out unless ESPN slash ABC puts $2 million in uh, some kind of fund for us to collect after we're done with schooling, some real power there if you can pull it off. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And I'll take, one, yeah. I'll take things one step further. It's not even done for television. It's done for gamblers because the only reason why these games are on TV are for gamblers anyway. No, that's a longer conversation. All right, anyway. By the way, you said something that uh, on Twitter that I found uh, interesting, sort of, at least half interesting. You okay. um, uh, mentioned that Sean McDonough is a terrific college football broadcaster, yeah. which I agree. Uh, to me, he, Blackledge, Holly Rowe, I think that's the best college football team. I think there's a lot of good ones, but I've always thought they're the best. And you mentioned, you said something like, you know, he was sort of lackluster on Monday Night Football or why wasn't this the same guy? And my point would be, that the chemistry between he and Gruden was not good. I don't think Gruden is necessarily the easiest guy to work with unless you really have worked with him for a while because he's sort of so booth dominant. And then lastly, McDonough had a year, if you remember, Jimmy, where the games were really, really terrible. So it was hard for him to get like one of those fantastic finishes. But I'm a big Sean McDonough person. I believe he could broadcast anything and and it'd be a terrific broadcast. Yeah, I mean, here's this is sort of the problem you get into with Twitter and, and tweeting is that you you throw something out there and it doesn't fully explain. When I meant blah, I didn't mean Sean personally was blah. I meant the overall booth and, and broadcast. And yes, I mean, a lot of that had to do with Gruden, who I thought was terrible on Monday Night Football. But the bottom line is Sean did it for, what was it, two years or three? I think it was two. I think it was two years, yep. Yeah, I mean, listen... That's all you need to know about how that worked out. I mean, it was two and out for Sean McDonough on Monday Night Football. That just shows you it was not a good. It's something blah. But that's, that was more. Was that's as much as about ESPN management changing that stuff up as opposed to Sean McDonough, right? Listen, ESPN. The the one thing you have to say. I mean, they 
they will change things up if things aren't working. I'm, I, and they I think will. you'll see that next year with Monday Night Football. Um, but it was not. I didn't mean to knock Sean and his work. Um, it just was not a memorable booth. I think here's the other problem you have too in this, in that because ESPN pays so much money for Monday Night Football, and ESPN has this sort of fake thing that no one else cares about except for them, where they think Monday Night Football is a big deal when it's not. <laughs> So they want they want they want the telecast to be this special event. It's just not. First of all, by the time Monday night rolls around, people are are worn out because now you have a game on Thursday night. You have games sometimes on Sunday at nine thirty in the morning with red zone. People are locked into football all day more than ever. Uh, your best game is always going to be Thursday night and Sunday night. This is a bad week to say that though because they have a great game uh, this week. Um, but the fact of the matter is Monday night football is not special. It's just not, it's just, it's any other football game at this point. The only thing that makes it special is that it's a standalone. There's nothing else that makes it special. Well, I mean, it's certainly not what it was, but the, the, it's unique in that it's prime time and it's at night. Sometimes you do get a good game like you get tonight, but yeah, yeah, I'm with you. It's, it is, yeah, the Bill Hoffheimers of the world. ESPN PR has to push this is this is a continuation of Dandy Don and Howard and Frank and it's just not the case. I, I wouldn't say it's well, any it's other just, game, Jimmy. It's, it's not like PR. it's they not like uh, it's not. Yeah, I mean, this isn't like Dick Stockton doing a 1 p.m. game in Tampa Bay. It's bigger than that. It's just not Sunday Night Football. It's just not the 4:25, well, right. you know, Mega Packers Cowboys game. Right. But it's still a notable right. game. Well, I. I, I, I it's, I think it's notable because it's a standalone, but it's always going to be the fourth best game of the week. I, I don't think it's the fourth best game this week, but I think generally speaking, you're correct. Uh, you know, it's never, I would never, you know, I would take the Fox, CBS, and, and NBC schedule every time over ESPN. I don't, I don't, I think everybody would. You know, the question would be is Thursday Night Football better? Even when they get a great game, a great matchup, it's not what it used to be because we've already seen. No, I agree with you. You know, two standalone games on Thursday night, Sunday night, you know. Jimmy, if you were running a network, would you take Thursday night football or Monday oh, night football? Oh, that's not even an issue. Thursday night, 100%. How are you finding the Sports Illustrated Media podcast? Are you enjoying it? Uh, I mean, listen, the line I always say, and it never changes, is when I when the mic goes on and I do the interview, I love it. Everything else around it is a huge pain in the ass. How, who books these days? Do you have a? Are you booking yourself or do you no, have help? Me. Yeah, me. I, listen. So myself. as as did I. As did I. You gotta. It sucks, but you gotta do it. That's part of the job, Jimmy. You have a lot of contacts in the business. It shouldn't be hard to get people. Uh, listen, I can get guests, and I book the thing by myself every single week, and I get guests. But sometimes you don't always get the guests you want. Sometimes, uh, you know, the guests you want can't do it for three weeks. Sometimes some PR will come to you and push a guess you don't want, and then that makes things awkward. Um, it's a big puzzle in terms of date. You know, I may want, you know, and then something in terms of like news something happens and you want to sort of cover it, and that window is very short. Um, so it's a, it's a big puzzle and a big maze. And I, I what I don't, I, I don't want to make it out like it's you know this horrible thing. I I, I love doing it. And I enjoy it a lot. The, the the thing I would say is, and I don't know if you feel this way, but curious, like when you do have a good guest and you do a good podcast 
and you think it's a great interview, you think people are going to enjoy it. And then the second it's over, though, you have to start worrying about who you're going to book the next week. It's a very short shelf life to enjoy what you've done. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand. By the way, I, thought, I enjoyed your Cena interview. I thought that was one of the best you've done just because uh, he was great and felt very comfortable with you, and uh, that was really good. I enjoyed that, actually, very much. Well, he was in person, which always, as you know, helps tremendously. Yeah, I know, I know. I don't have many anymore in person now that I'm in Toronto, so uh, uh, for sure. But, yeah, I, I understand that. I mean, the the... Not that anybody wants to hear inside podcast talk, but you know, you are always thinking ahead and like, who can I get? And the, the other thing is like, you know, there, the realities of what we do, because it is very much a niche, uh, subject is there is a big difference between certain guests in terms of downloads. And you always have to make that calculation. Like there's a story that's interesting that I want to do. I know it's not going to get a ton of downloads versus more famous person X, you know, what's the week I do that versus what's the week that I got to get, you know, John Cena. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have those pressures at Sports Illustrated and how much Sports Illustrated is sort of demanding or wanting a certain amount of downloads. Uh, that's one thing that's been uh, a little better for me now as sort of an independent is, you know, you could you do have a little more flexibility in terms of making those choices in terms of who you want as a guest and not have to think about um, – you know, somebody who's sort of counting all the podcasts and, 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 and wanting you to sort of hit a certain number. Yeah. I mean, listen, I just, I try, it's a, it's again, it's a puzzle because I want people on the podcast who I think listeners want to hear from. I want people who I want to speak to. Um, and I, who I think will be good. And, you know, that's not always who I think will be good may not be sort of an A name and then, you know, the downloads are down. It's, it's a very hard thing to figure out to, to know which ones will hit and which ones won't. Um, you know, and then you, you know, it helps when your guest promotes the podcast and then some do, and then some don't, you know, that's another issue. So uh, what, how are you finding booking yours these days? Is it just as the same as it was always? Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it I, I find that, not being at Sports Illustrated hurts a little bit because it's a. Right. I, I think uh, people were excited about being associated with Sports Illustrated. Right. I, it's not like anybody's turning me down per se, but I um, I miss the Sports Illustrated distribution. The one thing near the end of my tenure there that I thought was getting really really good was there was like an investment in podcasting and people wanted to push podcasts and they were invested in trying to get a lot of listeners and so like it would be pushed on social media channels fellow colleagues would push it out so now since i'm sort of on my own right. um i i don't get that nearly as much my, my podcast while um i have my association with the athletic it's not a quote-unquote athletic podcast right. so um so i miss that that's where one thing where i feel like the you know being part of si's distribution network was good although you know so many people, Jimmy, when we were there, or when I should say when I was there, who had a podcast are no longer at SI. You know, Peter King, uh, Golliver and Mahoney, a lot of the big podcasts at Sports Illustrated when I was there, there there's there's not many left. I hope you guys, even under your new management, I hope that continues. Well, there's still, listen, we still have the, you know, Grant Wall does his, John Wertheim has his, we have MMQB every single day, uh, Open Floor is there, different hosts. Uh, so that we still have a, a good amount going. We added an MMQB one. There's two different MMQ. There's 
the MMQBs with Breer and, and, and Connor Orr and Jenny Rentis, and then there's a daily MMQB news one. Um, Mannix is there doing podcasts. But I will say, you hit on something interesting. When I left Sports Illustrated for three sad years that I was at Fox, I will say, I even noticed there, when I... If I email a call for a podcast guest and I say, you know, oh, uh, you know, Jimmy Trainer from Sports Illustrated, you usually get a yes or a no right away. Whereas when I would call and say, oh, Fox Sports, like people just said no or ignored me. Yeah, listen, I, I mean, the one thing about, I, and I'm not putting on the spot for SI. No, I mean, you can put I mean, me on I've the spot. I've already had a lot of SI people. No, I understand that, but I, I'm sort of just telling you that. The one thing, though, that probably remains true today is that's a name that, it's a brand that, so many people instantly recognize. Like, you know what I mean? You don't right. have to explain where you are. I remember when I first started out in the business and I worked for the Metro Community News in Buffalo, New York. Like, I had to explain, like, sometimes what it was. Right. Like, that's one great thing about Sports Illustrated is you just say you never have to explain. Even the athletic. There are people who don't know what the athletic is. And so that was always a cool thing. And you're right. You'd at least get a an answer fairly quickly, either yes or uh, yes or no. But even Orand loves to be on your podcast. He loves the association with Sports Illustrated far more than he uh, likes the association with me. So use that to your advantage, I guess. You have to take that up with him. But yes, there are definitely people who um, come on because it's the Sports Illustrated media podcast. And there's two or three wackos who like me, and then they come on because they like me. So Oh, there's more than that. I'm <laughs> sure you, you have a fan base. All right, is there any – we could get into gambling, but maybe we'll save that for another time. Is there anything else you want to discuss before I let you go? This is I, – I listen, this was always going to be a B or a B-minus segment between me and you because we have to get our timing back. We're not in studio. We can't look at each other. There's, we, there's not any topic for this podcast which is so combative where we're going to disagree. So this is sort of the – this is almost a teaser podcast until the next time we talk. Next year, 2020, election year. This ESPN stick to sports thing, I, I can't wait to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, what, we both know what's going to happen. There's going to, there, there, there will be very, a couple of few brave souls who attempt to sort of mention it and either on their social media feeds or elsewhere, and it will be cause a big hullabaloo and they will probably have to uh, not necessarily apologize, but sort of push back from that. Jimmy Pitaro and his group are not going to allow this to happen. They, they, they are, they, they have lined, they have put a line in the sand on this one that nobody is to talk pure politics. And, you know, they want that NFL contract. They, they firmly believe that people are going to turn off ESPN. Uh, if, I, if some of their commentators mention anything about politics or social justice on Twitter, it's a nonsense belief, but whatever. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, what do you think? I don't, I don't think, I think we'll get some indirect kind of mentions, you know, like somebody retweeting somebody that's usually safe. Like an ESPN or maybe able to retweet something and nobody sort of notices or gets upset. But I think you're going to see very, very few people have an opinion on Donald Trump or the Democratic nominee? I just, listen, you and I have been very fortunate that we've worked for companies where we can say whatever we want, pretty much, within reason, of course. Yep, I just, within I, reason. I can't imagine being an ESPN person sitting there on election night or, you know, in the weeks leading up to it and not being able to say one thing about it. It would just rip my guts out, basically. 
I think, though, Jim, uh, that don't you think on election night, maybe they look the other way because they're not going to be able to police everything? That, that might be the one night where I actually think maybe they turn the the law off. Maybe you need to have Jimmy Fatar on your podcast to ask him that question. That's a very interesting question. Yeah, but OK, so let's say it's election night and Trump got reelected and you have someone from ESPN go on there and be like, I can't believe this shit happened again. Uh, you, I don't think ESPN is going to be happy with that. They won't be happy with it. The question will be, will there be any will there be any discipline? I mean, as you know, Jimmy, there are people out there who will see that uh, in total bad faith and try to almost narc those people out. The question will be, what will ESPN do? Will they look the other way because it's an emotional night or will they discipline people? I, what, what will happen for sure is those people will get a talking to. What I don't know is like, will there literally be any like, you know, we're suspending you without pay for a week? I would think, you know, ESPN is ESPN is not a dumb organization. And again, I don't know this, but I would think on election night with emotion sky high, I, I think they'll look the other way. I could be wrong, but that would be my take. But like some kind of uh, debate or somebody says something that really bothers somebody, I, I don't think they're going to look the other way. And I, I And as I've said many times, I think it's outrageous that people are not allowed on their private personal social media feeds not private but personal social media feeds to express how they feel well because espn caved into the critics who who would say that espn talks policy politics because someone would talk politics on their twitter feed and they would ignore that and try to create a narrative that you know personality x is talking politics on tv when they weren't they were just doing it on twitter but i also think Here's the other thing about it. I'm of the belief that the 2020 election is going to be, you know, he's not, I think if he, if he loses, he'll say he didn't. I don't think he's going to leave. So I think it's going to be like something that we've never seen before. And then all these poor people at ESPN aren't going to be allowed to tweet about it. It's going to be fascinating. You're going to open up a, you're going to open up a Pandora's box in this podcast. We're going to go another 30 minutes, but yes, I, everything you said, I think, there's a very, very high probability that that could happen. And I, yeah, I think it's very tough for ESPNers. And again, I can't repeat myself enough. It is not like Mike Greenberg and Laura Rutledge went on the air and started talking about Ukraine, Ukraine depositions. Like this never happened. It just literally never happened. On people's social media feeds, not Laura Rutledge and Mike Greenberg, by the way, but uh, yes, they talked about it on their Twitter feeds, generally speaking, but very few, very few pure politics ever made it to ESPN. And I would argue that they have a duty when the nexus of social uh, justice or the nexus of politics and sports comes together, they should be talking about that. You're, you claim to be a sports network with, with editorial and journalists, but uh, whatever. It's a soapbox for another day. Jimmy Traina is the host of the Sports Illustrated Media Podcast, the hottest podcast out there. He writes Traina Thoughts for SI.com, and uh, he's worked at Sports Illustrated for 19 years. Uh it's coming up perhaps on a 20th year anniversary. Jimmy, thank you very much for coming on the Sports Illustrated. <laughs> I screwed up, Jim. Thanks for coming on the Sports Media Podcast. I appreciate it. All right, Jimmy, thank you. It's good to catch up. Richard, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been too long. Let's do it again soon. And um, very nice of you to have me on. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. 
Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, back in the studio, my thanks to Robert Klemko and Jimmy Trina for some uh, really, really interesting conversations. Uh, great to catch up with Trina again. If you like this kind of content, uh, please head to uh, Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play and um, give us a, uh, a review. Five-star review would be nice and, uh, uh, and let us know what you think. The podcast before this was John Orand. Uh, on many different topics, and Tim Burke, a longtime Deadspin editor who took you inside that place and uh, its legacy and why things broke down and um, what the future for some of those writers might be. Before that, Michael Smith, a long-form interview, the former ESPNer. First time I think he's talked at least in that kind of length since he left ESPN after 15 years. And Isabella Kershudian, who is a Washington Post writer, covered the Caps for a long time, covered them great. She's now heading to Russia to uh, cover uh, politics in Russia uh, for the Washington Post. Head down the list of all the people. Uh, I think you'll find some stuff that you're interested in if you are a um, sports media fan. And for all the people who've supported this podcast, I, uh, I really, really appreciate it. All right, one um, note uh, before I uh, uh, get out of here. And that is, um, I think... You know, everybody here knows that I work for uh, Roger Sportsnet in Canada in addition to my athletic job. And I've always tried to be judicious when it comes to discussing Canadian politics or social issues because, you know, I am a visitor in Canada. Legit, like a, like a, you know, that is my status. I am, uh, I'm here on a work visa. And there's certainly enough politics and social issues in my country where I can talk about. And anybody who follows me on Twitter pretty much knows where I stand on that. Um, I've grown to love. Canada and specifically Toronto. I've said many, many times the people here have been incredible to me. The people in this country, the people at Rogers have been unbelievable. Uh, you know, it's basically as great an employer as I've, I've ever had. Um, they're a great company to work for. I'm not just saying as a company person, like it is, it has been a great place to work um, for me. And, you know, when you live here in Canada, when you live in Toronto and you just walk the streets, what you see are people from all over the people who have come here from all over the world. It is a very inclusive place. Uh, my kids go to school with people of like multiple ethnicities and, and from many, many different countries, which is an incredible thing to, to be part of. And people are really proud to be here. They're, they're proud of their country. They are proud of Canada, even if they are relatively new to Canada as I am. And so the idea that wearing a poppy should be some kind of uh, test of patriotism or nationalism, um, which gets to obviously Don Cherry's comments. I, I've, uh, as the statement that Sportsnet said, I just I find that um, kind of offensive. Not kind of offensive. I find that offensive, and I, I could not disagree with it more. And I am somebody who certainly supports people speaking about issues away from sports, uh, and even those people who I've massively disagreed with when I write about sports media or really loathe, like people like Skip Bayless, never called for their firing. I mean, I think that the airway should be um, free to discuss stuff, but also criticism comes with that. And the one thing that I want to leave you with is um, 
one of my colleagues from The Athletic tweeted something out, uh, Arpan Basu, who uh, just offered three tweets that were really, really incredibly thoughtful. And I think captured this, at least for me, is at least as best of what I've seen. And so he says, okay, I've read a lot of the Don Cherry stuff, and there's one thing people are missing. It is that for many people of color, feeling fully Canadian can sometimes be an elusive goal. Hockey is one of the best gateways to reach that goal. Here is why what Cherry said is hurtful. It is hurtful because in pursuit of that goal, you can make incremental gains, a period of time where your otherness has never come up, not been an issue at all, perceived or otherwise. Those incremental gains feel good. They provide a certain measure of comfort. But it, all it takes is, open quote, you people, for those incremental gains to be wiped away, completely overwhelmed and erased by two small words that mean so much, that are so malicious. Two words on our national hockey broadcast, and you're right back at zero. I appreciate Arpan Besu, who works with me uh, at The Athletic in Montreal. Those are really powerful words, and I wanted to share them with you. Again, my thanks to, uh, my thanks to Cadence 13. Of course, my thanks to Patrick Antonetti for producing this podcast. We will be back next week. This is Richard Deitch. Thanks again for listening to the Sports Media Podcast.